We're in a sermon series looking at the kingdom. As we look at the kingdom, we are focusing on the Sermon on the Mount. Three chapters in the book of Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And in this sermon that Jesus preaches, he's talking about what does it mean to be a kingdom citizen. And uh, so as we go through these chapters, all along the way, he's trying to help us to see that once you make a decision for Christ, once you accept the grace that he has given you, and by faith you accept him as Savior, you become a part of his kingdom. So to be a kingdom citizen, how are we to live? And so as we walk through here, we are discovering that he takes things that, that maybe we, on the surface, we thought we were supposed to do, and he goes a little bit deeper and gets into the intent and into the motive and into the desires to show what it really means to be a kingdom citizen. Last Sunday, we, we began a little bit of this journey as we'd covered the Beatitudes, and then we talked about salt and light, and then we got into where he said that your righteousness to, needs to exceed that of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were the real box checkers on there where they checked all the, all the outer, outer boxes. And Jesus says there's a, a superior righteousness. There's a righteousness that comes through Christ. It's, it's a righteousness that we need to have that's more than just checking a box. It goes even deeper. You aren't supposed to murder anyone. Fine, we can check that box, but let's go even deeper. And that is that you need to control your anger. You don't need to be angry towards anyone. Went a little deeper. Well, today, Jesus is going to talk about another commandment. He talked about the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. Today, he's going to talk about the seventh commandment, and that is thou shalt not commit adultery. And when you take a look at the verses that we have, just these few verses, you're going to see that in those verses, he talks about both adultery, talks about lust, talks about divorce, and talks about remarriage. So what could probably be maybe three sermons we're going to put together in one. Okay? And so at one o'clock today, we'll be out. But don't worry about it. We're going to share snacks at noon, give you a little break. No. We're going to, we're going to get this. Okay? So you follow with me, kind of strap on your pew belt and get ready to go because we're going to run through here. But I feel like we need to cover all of this so we don't just leave something out. So let's just begin with this. And the first part is, is he deals with adultery. And so the first thing is the statement of the law. And he stated the law, and the statement of the law is, do not commit adultery. In verse 27, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Well, the definition of that word, and as these people were listening to it, it refers to sexual relations by a married person with a partner other than his or her spouse. So it says, you are not supposed to do this, and the reason it's serious is because it breaks the covenant. It breaks that covenant marriage. It's an act of betrayal. It disparages the love and trust that one partner has invested in his or her mate. And in the Old Testament, Joseph, who was a slave, was being tempted by his boss's wife to, to have physical relations with her, and he kept rebuffing her. And the reason he said he did that was not only was it a sin against her, but in Genesis 39, 9, he says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So he understood that the sin of adultery was not just against another person, but it was against God. And so the rabbis and the Pharisees of their day, they kept this commandment and they provided, they kept this commandment provided that they avoided the act of adultery itself. And as long as they had not been involved in the act itself, they felt pretty good about themselves in relation to this particular commandment. 
It is they could say, hey, I've been faithful to my wife. I haven't been sleeping around with anybody else, so I've checked that commandment off. What they've done is they've conveniently given us a very narrow definition of sexual sin and a conveniently broad definition of sexual purity. So what Jesus does is gives us the sense of the law, the sense of the law. And the sense of the law is to refrain from lustful intent. And he takes this a little bit deeper. And you'll see in verse 28, he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So now he's going beyond the act all the way into just the intent itself. And see, what Jesus knows is that the battles are fought on an internal basis. The battles are fought within our desires. And if you lose the battle on the inside, then all of a sudden, outwardly, you will make some bad decisions. And with the phrasing here of where he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, lustful intent means that you have the desire to have a sex with that woman. Jesus does not mean that it's wrong to look at a woman admiringly. That's the way we're created. And that is the same for women could look at a, at a, at a man and you could see someone that's attractive. It doesn't mean that you're not supposed to say, hey, that's an attractive person. But it is wrong to do so lustfully. So he's not forbidding a natural, normal attraction. That's a part of our humanity. What he forbids is a deep-seated lust that consumes the inner person. So we all understand that there's a difference between looking and lusting. It's the first glance. It's not the first glance that is sin, but the second look that swells with lust and feeds upon the subject. And so, you know, back then they had some Pharisees that were really strict Pharisees, and they were calling the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. And those are the ones that didn't even want to look at a woman. They felt it was wrong to even look at a woman. So when a woman would come, they'd close their eyes, and and then they'd bump into something. So they called them the bruised and bleeding. I took that same thing and I said, we got bruised and bleeding Baptists. The bruised and bleeding Baptists are the ones that go, what? Whoa, hey, whoa, then they bump into something. Well, what he's talking about is taking that second look. And he began to take the second look to where there's a lustful intent. And he says, the use of that tense conveys that the person has already committed adultery with the woman. This occurs in his heart, in the essence of his being. And so the lack of opportunity may restrain you from actual sin, but in intention, you've already committed the act. Physically, you did not do anything, but in your heart and in your mind, you have done that. Now listen, most every male and female believer has crossed the line from attraction to lust at some time in their life. We are all adulterers by this standard. Thus, what this should do is always take us back to that very first beatitude. The very first beatitude was, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That means we're bankrupt in spirit. That means that we have to come to God and say, God, I am a sinner, and I know that there's nothing in me that can deserve to be in your presence. And I see your holiness, I see my sin, I am spiritually bankrupt. And it says, when the person realizes they are spiritually bankrupt, then you come to Christ, you receive him, and when you receive his grace, then yours is the kingdom of heaven. You become a part of God's family. You become a part of the kingdom of God. And so it drives us there. And what Jesus is wanting to let them know, listen, guys, it's not just the outward physical act, but it's going, what is going on inside. And if you don't get a control on what's going on inside, then that outward act down the road is going to be a reality. 
But it's wrong even in your own heart to have that lustful intent towards the woman. Now, the third point is the seriousness of the violation. The seriousness of the violation is shattered lives. And Jesus deals with the seriousness of this sin. In verse 29, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body goes into hell. So what Jesus is doing is he's, he's looking and he says, you know, take your eye, okay? Take that eye and, and that's where adultery begins. And it begins with the eyes. And then the eyes of the heart are stimulated by the eyes of the flesh. And he says, and if that causes you to sin, if it causes you to stumble, it's like a trap that ensnares you. And if it ensnares you like that, he says, you need to tear it out. And it's, that's figurative, not literal. But Origen, who's in the third century, um, took this literally. And he castrated himself. Yikes. Um, And he says, because I want to be a keeper of this commandment. But even doing something like that still did not take away what was going on inside his heart and what goes inside his mind. And so what Jesus is saying is, when he says this, he says, this is serious stuff. Don't look. Behave as if you'd actually plucked out your eyes and flung them away and you're blind and you couldn't see the objects which previously caused you to sin. He said, just don't do that. When he saw cut off your right hand, he's saying, hey, don't handle the things that would cause you to sin. Get rid of them. You see, the point of Jesus using this type of uh, hyperbole language is that he says, this is serious stuff. He says, this can destroy you and it can destroy your marriage relationship. And he says, deal with it. Deal with it now. I remember reading uh, something a few years ago that just stayed with me. It says, the lure of adultery is that another person will be able to meet my needs and gratify my desires. That is the lure of adultery. For someone to get involved in an affair and to get involved with someone else, the lure of it is, oh, this person will meet my needs and they will gratify all my desires. The lie of adultery is that no one will be hurt. I can go and have this on the side and no one will be hurt. That's a lie. And the truth of adultery is that lives and families are being shattered every day because we compromise our moral character and commitment. It's a serious, it's a serious violation. And so what Jesus says is we're to take drastic measures to avoid temptation to sin. We're not to pamper with it. We're not to flirt with it. We're not to nibble on the edges of sin. We are to hate it, to crush it, and to dig it out. And Jesus says there are places we must not go. There are things we must not handle. There are websites not to access, movies not to watch, books not to read. You should remove habits, associations, or pleasures that could lead you to sin and to a ruined life. And just as you listen to that list, whether it be websites or movies or books or associations, all of a sudden there's a person that you've met of the opposite sex and all of a sudden you begin to see there could be some feelings there. You need to cut off that association. He says, you don't play around with sin. And when you get into this area, you get in this battle, you got to be proactive in fighting the battle. Job said in Job 31.1, he says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust at a young woman. 
He made a covenant with his eyes. He said, I'm going to be proactive in this, that I will not look at a young woman lustfully. The Apostle Paul, when he's writing to the church at Corinth, which, which was steeped in sensuality over there, said to this, he says, flee from sexual immorality. Flee. Run from it. I mean, don't even play around with it. Don't dabble with it. Don't stick your feet in the, in the ocean over here, kind of on the shore. He says, you need to flee from sexual immorality. A perfect example is King David, a man after God's own heart. And King is, and David is at the, at the pinnacle of his reign, and things are going great in the kingdom. And when kings went out to war, he decided not to go out to war. And he, that afternoon, he thought he'd just stay. So he stays around uh, in his home, and he steps outside, and he looks over there, and there's a beautiful woman taking a bath uh, out there on a rooftop. She's doing exactly what she should do because everybody else should have been gone, but he was there. And when he saw her, all of a sudden, he began to get a lustful intent. He checked on her and says, who is this woman? And he said, oh, that's Bathsheba. She's married to Uriah, one of your best soldiers. And he said, well, let's invite her over to come to our house. He invites her over, and all of a sudden, he seduces her, and they have an affair. And then she finds out she's pregnant. He has her husband killed. And then to be the good, godly king, he takes her on as his wife. You look at both those things we just said. Make a covenant with your eyes not to look at a woman lustfully. And number two is flee sexual immorality. What David should have done is when he walked out there and he saw that, should have gone, whoa, hey, don't need to look over there. And gone back inside and watched ESPN, okay? Uh, and, 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 and done something different. But even when he saw, and then he says, okay, I'm going to kind of take a step over here. Who is she? Well, that's Uriah's wife. Even more, oh, yeah, I shouldn't even ask the question. It's crazy. Yeah, I love him. He's one of my favorite soldiers. Flee sexual immorality. Go. Get away from that. But he didn't. And whenever affairs happen, whenever adultery takes place, it's because you don't flee. You just sort of hang, hang around. And so what Jesus is pointing out is that there can be some really difficult consequences. There can be shattered lives. And so he is so strong on this, and he knows us. And he says, man, if you're right off the end, you got to cast it out. Right hand, cut it off. He says, just run away from those things. So he shares that. Well, then, after he's covered that, he moves right in to divorce. And so we need to cover this because what, what Jesus does is, in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about something, murder, and he comes down to anger. He goes to adultery, takes that down to lust. And then while he's there... He's saying, okay, let me talk about divorce. In divorce, in verse 31 and 32, he said, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Has a lot in just those two verses. Now, you've got those two verses, and I'd like you to keep your hand on there but where this gets expanded is in Matthew chapter 19. So if you'll turn to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Jesus gets asked a question about this, and he goes into more detail than what we have there on the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? Now, I'm going to walk through this. Let's walk through these points. Okay? Divorce. And then we're going to talk about remarriage. Everybody hang on. Let's sit here and just see what does God's word say. The first thing about divorce, God's intention for marriage, two words, exclusive and permanent. God's intention for marriage, 
exclusive and permanent. In chapter 19, excuse me, in verse 31, Jesus gives this example of spirit righteous. And you go to chapter 19, I want you to look at verse 3. In 19, verse 3, it says, And the Pharisees came up to him, and they tested him by asking him, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? This was a hot topic of, of uh, theological debate during that time. In Deuteronomy 24.1, Moses made a statement, made a law, that there was a, that a man could issue a certificate of divorce for his wife if he finds some indecency in her. And this is the key word. Moses says a man could issue a certificate of divorce for his wife if there was an indecency that was found in her. So then they began to parse the word indecency. What does that mean? There were two schools of thought. One school of thought was it meant adultery. If she committed adultery, you issue her a certificate of divorce. There was another group that took that and expanded it. And it says it could mean almost anything. Anything you could think of. Anything that was displeasing to her husband. And as you look back through history, everything from if she burned the breakfast, you could divorce her. If you saw a woman who was more pleasing to you, you could divorce her. How about this? If you ever heard her speak ill of the in-laws, you could divorce her. We'd have a lot of single women roaming the streets in Birmingham right now. Just think, your mother-in-law, hope she's not here today, your mother-in-law, she just kind of gets on your nerves on something and you say something to the husband, you're on the street. I mean, they, they made it over here to where almost anything. So there's this raging debate. So when they ask, they're asking him this question, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So look what Jesus does. This is how Jesus answers this question. He says, man, you guys, let me, let me take you back to the intention of marriage. And so look in verses four through six. So what Jesus says is he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, male and them, when he created them from the beginning, he made them male and female, okay? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast. If you have a King James Version, it's cleave. It means to glue together, to weave together, hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. And so they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. When they asked a question about issuing a certificate of divorce for what purposes, Jesus came back and said, let me tell you what the intention of marriage is. And he says, God's intention was he focused on these two words. It's exclusive and it's permanent. It's exclusive and it's permanent. It is a divine institution in which God makes permanently two people into one flesh. It is an unconditionally giving of ourselves to each other. It is looking for ways to meet each other's need and to seek each other's happiness even more than our own. That's what marriage is. Marriage is two becoming one. And he says, what God has put together, let not man put asunder. And it is exclusive. That person you married is exclusive for you. That person that you married, that is to be permanent. Now, that is God's design, and that's the way Jesus shared when they asked him the question. 
But then let me give you the second point, and that is divorce is not an option except for adultery. Divorce is not an option. He said, and why would you say divorce is not an option? In Malachi 2.16, it says God hates divorce. Okay? God hates divorce. And he hates it because it destroys his original design, his original design, the man and the woman to come together to be one. It's a picture of Christ and the church, all of this together. And he says he just hates divorce. But you know, I've, I've got something to where I think every one of us agrees with God, and that is we hate divorce too. I've never met anyone who's gone through a divorce that said, wow, I was sure looking forward to getting married and get divorced. There's no one I've ever done pre-marriage counseling with to where they came to me and they said, hey, I can't wait to get this service and get this little five-year relationship done. Every person that stands right here and makes their vows pledges that they will love them till death parts them. And that's how everybody goes into a marriage. And that is the desire that we have is that, is that we would be one and that we would always be married. And when divorce happens, it's not tearing apart of two lives. It's ripping apart of one life. And that's why it's painful and that's why it hurts. And so you need to understand my heart. As we walk through these verses and talk about this, it is painful. And it's painful for those that have walked through it. But it says God hates divorce. It destroys his original design. When I've said here divorce is not an option, this is a challenge for all of you that are married. And that is that um, I heard in a Bible study one time, a person said marriage is like when a husband and wife get married, they walk into a room that has no windows, and when they close the door behind them, they seal the door, and there's no exit. You're there together. Make it work. Divorce is not an option. Two good words, forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness and reconciliation. Marriage is not easy. It's tough. And for all of us. And so for you folks that are just newly married, and when we recognize someone's been married for 50 years, and it's this sweet senior adult couple, and she's just the sweetest little thing, and he's just such a nice little old man, and you say, oh, they're so sweet, and they've been married 50 years, there's just been wonderful bliss. Look at all senior adults laughing. Uh, it ain't been bliss. There have been hard times. There have been times when they didn't know if they could spend another day with that person. It has been rough. But you know what? They said, we're going to persevere. And when they stand there at that 50th anniversary, you know what they say? Everyone I've talked to said, man, it was worth it all. We had some rocky times. He just put us on our knees, depended more on God, grew deeper in our love for each other. But we knew it still death parts us. I mean, it wouldn't do anything different. Okay? So don't, don't think that it's just going to be simple. And I want you, especially for you young marrieds, you've been married a few years and all of a sudden there's a little rocky moment that happens. You go, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, what's happening? He doesn't love me, all that stuff. He does. Hang in, hang in there. And don't sit there and say, oh no, we're going to get divorced. That's why I say, take it off the table. Just say divorce is not an option. We're going to work through this thing. Let's do forgiveness and let's do reconciliation. Now, this is what Jesus says to him. After he talked about the importance of marriage, look at the next verses. In verses seven through eight, they said to him, well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Now, now listen to the to word. Words are important. Um, it says, go back, David, go back one. 
This is why words are important. Go back one. All right. Uh, what does that word say right there? Command. All right. So why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? Moses didn't command to give a certificate of divorce. Check the wording. Then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Their whole mindset is, we're really pushing this divorce issue, and we want to command them to give this certificate of divorce. Look at the next verse. Next verse, Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Why did Moses have this certificate of divorce? Because of your hardness of heart, he allowed it to happen. It's just the hardness of heart. Now, you need to understand during that day, Moses wrote this whole law to protect women. And there weren't a whole lot of things during that day that were protecting women. A wife was considered a man's property. And so what the bill of divorce would do, it would prove that the husband had released legal claims upon his wife when he sent her out of the home. She could then seek a new home and new relationships. And without this certificate, another man could be accused of stealing or violating property rights of the first husband if he took her as a wife or as a servant. So if someone divorced a wife and kicked her out of the house, then if he would need to give a certificate, so then another man, if she wanted to begin a new relationship with someone else, he would realize that she was still not attached to this person here and gave her some freedom. So it's not a command to a husband to divorce his wife, nor he's not encouraging him to do that. It's a reference to certain necessary procedures if the divorce takes place. And that's what Moses did that, to protect the women. And then you come to verse 9. Verse 9 says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. We're going to focus on right here, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. This is what is called the exception clause. And it's found in Matthew, and it's found in Matthew 5, and also found in Matthew 19. And it says the only grounds for a biblical divorce is adultery, which means unfaithfulness and illicit intercourse that involves adultery. That's what it is. So I want you to understand this. Jesus permitted it, but he didn't command it. So it does not mean that an act of adultery requires divorce. Many look for a way out instead of a way through the problems. The standard is still to seek forgiveness and reconciliation and to keep the marriage intact and to grow stronger. I want you to hear this. Because um, someone in your, let's say you're married and your mate, whether it be the man or the woman, if they got involved in an adulterous affair and then came back, and and there's forgiveness, there's a hope for reconciliation, that should be what your desire would be, to try to keep the marriage intact. It's not like I'm just cruising, looking for a way to get out of this marriage, hoping that person will commit adultery so I get a a marriage out of free card, you know? That's not it. Jesus says on here that that it is the only way that you can biblically be divorced But the desire, the standard, is seek forgiveness, reconciliation, keep the marriage intact, and to grow stronger. However, there will be situations where there is no repentance, to where the person that has committed this act of adultery is not repentant and does not desire to be reconciled. Then at that point, what Jesus says is, you can be divorced. 
and you got to let it go. You got to let it go. So I hope you, you hear me clearly. You're not encouraging anybody to have an affair. But if somebody has an affair and there's adultery, it does not mean that you say, oh, I have to divorce them. No, you don't. Jesus says you're permitted to. Biblically, you have grounds to divorce that person. The hope would be there can be some reconciliation, especially if there are children involved in the family, to try to keep the whole family intact. But he says, from a divorce standpoint, that can happen. So now, the burning question that we have is about remarriage, okay? And so remarriage. And we just ran out of time, so we'll talk about this next Sunday. <laughs> no, here we go. All right, remarriage. Well, what does the Bible say about about remarriage. Well, in verse 32, chapter 5, verse 32, and chapter 19, verse 9, okay? Let's put both those verses up. David, you got both those verses? Okay, 532, uh, but I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual uh, immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever remarries divorced woman commits adultery. That's 532. Then you get to verse, chapter 19, verse 9, says the same thing. It says, and marries another, commits adultery. So I want you to go back to, um, go back to the 532 for just a minute. Jesus speaking, I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual morality, makes her immorality, makes her commit adultery. Well, it seems like as you read this passage that Jesus is assuming that a woman, if she gets divorced, that she's going to remarry. Because that's the only way you can make her commit adultery. You see, if, if a couple's married and, and uh, someone committed adultery and then they get divorced and you say you're making her commit adultery, that doesn't make her commit adultery because she's divorced. It means that whenever she remarries... So there's almost a presumption here that Jesus is saying during that day that a person most likely is going to get remarried. And so if they get remarried, that's where he's laying this out here. So, so if you look at that, it says, then whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So if God permits divorce which is something contrary to his express will, there's no surprise to me that God then permits marriage, something that he created and intended for people to live within. So he says, I hate divorce, but I permit it in these areas. Then at the same time, God who created marriage would permit marriage to take place. So if you take these passages, let me summarize it and see if this is make it clear. Number one, the first thing is, Divorce due to adultery, the innocent party can remarry. According to Scripture, if there was a divorce due to adultery, the innocent party can remarry. So that means if a woman was having an adulterous affair and there was a, there was a divorce that took place, the husband was the innocent party. And flip-flop, if the husband was having an affair, the woman was the innocent party. When divorce took place, that innocent party, they can remarry according to Scripture on there. Number two. I'm going to introduce something new to you. Divorce due to abandonment, the innocent party can remarry. Divorce due to abandonment, the innocent party can remarry. You say, well, what is abandonment? 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. Apostle Paul says this. He talks about if an unbelieving and a believing spouse, if they're married... Usually what would happen is that two unbelievers came together and one person received Christ and there's another one who did not. 
And if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. When it means not enslaved, it means you're not uh, enslaved to that marriage relationship. So if the unbeliever abandons you and says, you know, this Jesus stuff that you're doing, I can't handle that anymore. I don't want, you're not the same person that I married. Your life has been transformed and changed and you're going to heaven. I'd prefer to stay the way I'm living and be miserable and go to hell. And so that's it. And, and so then when he says, I just can't live that life, then what they'll do is they say, well, I'm just going to abandon it. I want to, I don't want anything to do with you. He says, then you are free to remarry. Now, number three, If grounds for divorce are not adultery or abandonment, then remarriage is adulterous for both parties. According to what the passage says, scripture passage says, that if your divorce was not because of adultery and not because of abandonment, and then you got remarried, he says, you would be committing adultery. You and the person that that you married on there. And so what the recommendation, and when you read what Paul has to say, is that a person would not remarry, and they would live for the will of God in their singleness. And I think people understand that whenever there's a second marriage, there's always baggage that comes with it. No matter how sweet and kind you are, there's always baggage that comes from that. Things that need to have been dealt with, okay? And um, blending families, it's difficult. Some of you are doing it, and you're doing a marvelous job of it, but you know there are challenges on there. And so second marriages, there are some challenges along the way. And so one of the options is, If you got divorced, just to say, I'm going to live it out single and not do that anymore. But as you read through scripture, it is almost a presumption that most people want to be married. They want to have a family. And, and so they, they can't live that single life. They want to be able to have a family. And so when you look at what Jesus said, he was almost presuming that the person would want to get remarried. And so it believes that Jesus says, Hey, If you marry, it's going to be an adulterous relationship. So how do you handle that? I want you to hear this very clearly. So what happens if you get remarried? Let's say you're sitting here today, and you said um, there was a divorce that took place. It didn't have anything to do. It was not adultery. It was not abandonment. And but yet I've gotten remarried. So it says that according to Scripture that that was an adulterous relationship. So does that mean that I should divorce that person? so that I'm not living in that adulterous relationship. Number one, there's nothing in Scripture that says you're living in adultery. It just says the foundation started adulterous, but it not, does not say that you're living in adultery. Number two is God hates divorce. And when you got remarried, God recognized that as a marriage. You say, well, why do you think God recognized that as a marriage? Well, when Jesus met the woman at the well, And he said, hey, go call your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. Jesus used the word husband. That means marriages. So she had five marriages. So he affirmed that she had married, and he also said, the guy you're shacking up with is not your husband. There's a difference between coming together and being married and and shacking up. And, And Jesus made that very clear. So if you have a second marriage, it is a marriage. And God don't want you to divorce. God hates divorce. So that's not, that's not that, that desire at all. So even though the marriage may be founded, according to Scripture, in adultery, it can be lived out in a life that's pleasing to God. And that's what his desire is. Is that when it started out, 
According to scripture, that was adulterous foundation. But then God comes along and he says, if you're going to do that, you need to live a life that's honoring to God. You need to live out your marriage honorably before God. You know, when David had his sin with Bathsheba, when he had his sin with Bathsheba, he committed adultery because she was a married woman and he was a married man. He committed sin with her. He then had her husband murdered and then he married her. And when Nathan the prophet came to him and finally convicted him of his sin, he comes back in Psalm 51 and says, God, against you and you only have I sinned. I understand that. And not one time did Nathan say, hey, you need to get rid of Bathsheba. You've already married her. He didn't sit there and say, you got to divorce her. They stayed together. They had a son by the name of Solomon. And if you just assume from Scripture, they lived a life that was honoring God. But now David faced some consequences within his family that dealt with some problems his kids did, and that went back to the adulterous relationship he had had. So there's always going to be consequences when we commit, when he committed that act of adultery over there. It was, and so in his life, because he made a bad decision when he had an affair with her, had her husband murdered, and you can begin to see that he just kind of backed off as a dad, and you can see some of the things that happened with his kids. But yet never in there did it say you've got to stop that relationship. And so if you're in a second marriage, then what God wants us to do is to live your marriage honorably before God. Now, when I say you live it honorably before God, statistics show, and there's all these statistics about how many people get divorced or how many marriages make it or not, but one of the latest statistics show that those who have an active faith are 35% less likely to get divorced. That's pretty encouraging. Those who have an active faith are 35% less likely to get divorced. So we want to keep Christ first. I want to close this on a good note. I want to give you four quick things. We're just going to list them right here. Are you ready? Number one. Number one is this. Take divorce off the table. No option. Focus on forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, what I'm doing, I'm saying this to families that are married and you're just traveling through life together. I think it's great for a husband and wife to sit down and say, let's just take divorce off the table, okay? Let's take it off the table. Make it no option. Let's focus on forgiveness and reconciliation. This does not give you a freedom to just do whatever you want to because that's the second point. The second point is this. It is practice love and respect. Now, I did a sermon series about a year or so ago off of a book talking about the crazy cycle and talking about love and respect. And I'm telling you, if you'll do that, you're going to be in great shape. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ Jesus loved the church and gave himself for her. You love your wife like Christ loved the church and you serve her like she is that precious weaker vessel, that expensive piece of china that she is. And if you do that and wives respect your husband, see to it that a wife respect her husband, you show your husband respect, he's going to stick that chest down and think he's the best thing that's ever been. And it doesn't take much. Just a compliment. That'll get us through a week uh, on that. So practice love, practice respect. And just go on and make the decision that in your marriage, you say, I don't want to go through this divorce. I don't want to go through difficult times. I don't want to be an unfaithful spouse. Okay, you practice love and practice respect. And you can build that great marriage. You'll be standing here with your 50-year anniversary on there. Number three, if you're divorced, and you say, well, I've gone through it. I've been divorced. 
Forgive your spouse and deal with bitterness before remarrying. If you're thinking about stepping into remarriage, after all that we've talked about on here, you can never take a baggage of, forgive, of bitterness into a relationship. And that's what makes second marriage is pretty difficult, is because there's still so much hurt from what took place in that first marriage. So I'm saying, even if you don't want to remarry and you've gone through a divorce, I would strongly encourage you get to the point to where you can forgive that spouse and to release and remove that bitterness. That's going to give you such a freedom just to live the life that God's called you to live. And if there's a couple that's going to come together and they're going to remarry, you want to make sure that you've dealt with those things before you step into that. And then number four is this, and that is to remember we are all under grace. We are all under grace. Listen, we've all messed up and we've all made mistakes. And because of that, Jesus went to the cross to die for us. He paid the penalty for our sins. And he gives us an opportunity to accept that gift and to come and be a part of his family. And to know that we are under grace. And that means as we sit around here in this room and you see some marriages, you say, oh, these are just great marriages. I want to celebrate that and praise God. We're going to see other people that are struggling and they're going through, going through some difficult times. We need to put our arm around them. There's some that have walked through divorce. There's some right now that are walking through divorce, and it's painful. And we as a church family need to be there and to put our arms around them and to understand the grace of God. Give them good counsel. Pray with them. Love on them. Walk with them through these times. They are hard, hard times. But then I want to just drive it home to those that are married. Make every opportunity to say, I want to strengthen my marriage and I want us to be together till death parts us. Exclusive and permanent. That's the way I want, I want it to be. And see, that's the way it, God intended. But as you go through all these scriptures, you see God intended that, but yet God is also there with grace whenever we fall. And he's gonna love on us and he's gonna hold us up, okay? Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, to be a kingdom citizen, Let's get a handle on this lust. That's something every person can control. Covenant with your eyes. Flee from sexual immorality. Deal with that. If you deal with that, then you're not going to have to worry about the adulterous affairs. If you don't have to worry about the adulterous affairs, that's one thing off the table that you and your wife are going to be struggling with. And then you can just focus on being married together, coming together as one and then advancing the kingdom of God through your marriage relationship. And may that be our prayer for all of us. Let me ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes for just a moment. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for your son Jesus and for the teachings he's given us in Scripture. And Lord, some of these things are kind of hard and they're difficult. And the reason they are is because what your son said, and that is hardness of heart. And Lord... Um, there's some things that, uh, that we don't know. There's situations that we run into and, and we just shake our head and say, God, we're looking for some way for you to give me a direction and to help me with that. And I thank you that through your word that, that you have laid out the importance of us being strong in marriages and to be committed to our spouses until death parts us. And so I want to lift up this entire congregation. 
And I pray for those that are looking to get married and for those that are married that you would put them on the right path and help them to be focused on you. And then, Lord, for those that are walking through some tenuous times, I pray that they would um, sit down as a couple and begin to uh, pray about steps that they can take to strengthen, strengthen their family. And, Lord, I'm, I'm just wise enough to know that there are some that even almost too much water has gone under the bridge or there's just some things that have happened that are just almost unspeakable that they've got to step away. And so, Lord, again, I just pray for your grace and I pray that the people would know that they're loved and that we will help and walk with people through these difficult times. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the way that you've created us and we thank you for your salvation and for the opportunity to be a part of your family. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.